The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. To the house, This is unbelievable. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Hope you have enjoyed our hurry-up hot seats as they've been coming along. Uh, We're going to continue counting all the way down to the number one team in the 2020 CBS Sports preseason rankings. Check out the team profiles on CBSSports.com. Check out the uh, hot seat conversations by subscribing to the Cover 3 Podcast. Uh, We are back in what feels more like regular programming here uh, sitting down for a spring gleaning we have f- arrived at the SEC East as longtime listeners know this is a Georgia podcast we will uh, try and give you the most biased opinions on the entire division as possible but before we get into it um, Tom Barton gentlemen how are we doing uh disenfranchised disenfranchised what does that, that mean for the non-educated uh I I was led to believe that murder hornets were were a terrible thing and we should be scared of them. But I'm here today to declare that murder hornets, charlatans, based on video evidence that I've seen the last few days, I mean, I've seen them get taken down by some bees, which they're supposed to be, you know, they're the thing that they're supposed to be killing. But I saw like a swarm of bees just completely devastate a murder hornet. Today, I saw a video of a praying mantis literally eating the murder hornet's head as the murder hornet was trying to escape from its grasp. I think... I think the murder hornets are more like you know the Charlotte hornets. Hor- yeah, they're they're getting <laughs> murdered hornets. That's what they are. It's more like so, going to finish uh, eighth or ninth in the Eastern Conference, get swept in the first round of the playoffs if they make it, and forever be locked into a not top ten but still lottery pick. Yeah, and I'm I'm mad because Rotoware put out like this uh, this murder hornet shirt that was pretty sweet, right? It's it's like a hornet holding a gun. And I bought one because it's like, that's a pretty sweet shirt. And now I'm going to be having this shirt. And it's like, no, they're, 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 they're wimps. You're not even proud to rock a murder hornet shirt. I mean, maybe it'll become like the workout around the house, you know, kind of shirt sure. that nobody sees. But just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to wear it in public. Well, hey, look, man, that's encouraging. If I'm not supposed to be scared of murder hornets and their, uh, what, what is, what, how has their, their sting been described as like, piercing 
like metal in your skin or thumbtacks. <laughs> okay, so so good. So I don't have to worry about thumbtack things because we're not we don't care about murder hermits. I got enough to worry about. So I appreciate that. I'll I'll rejoice in that for Nelly. Apparently, murder hornets are just like the people on social media who talk a big game. But then, as soon as somebody stands up to them, they're like, "Whoa, whoa, chill, man! I was just kidding." Speaking of uh, social media, I love that we've got listeners that are replying to the Cover Three podcast. You can follow it on Twitter at Cover Three Podcast. Very in the know of what to expect from the SEC <laughs> East uh, Division Spring Gleaning episode. Thank you. Shout out to you, uh, Barton. How are you? How are things in your world? Uh, we're good. We're, I'm still. I'm not sure if. I mean, I think I gave you guys the heads up earlier in the week about the storms that ripped through Nashville. It was some like random freak weather pattern of 70 mile per hour straight line winds called some something I've never heard of. Um, and so we're, I'm still waiting on internet to get back in my house. So I am in my I'm in my parents' basement once again. Just sort of, I'm out of the vacant house, right? In-laws house they're selling. I'm now in my parents' basement, so I'm just sort of uh, couch surfing for a while on these podcasts until I get a home home base. The uh, you're you are just like um, somebody who who might just sort of float around from family member to family member, like maybe do, doesn't need to get a job, but is kind of just cruising <laughs> along. You've got your computer and a full office setup you can take with you. I tell if if, if my parents and in-laws didn't live in this town i would be in i'd be in bad shape from a from a mental standpoint uh our, the simmons household would be um we'd be going out in flames right <laughs> well hey much love to family shout That's out right. to all the parents out there um right. all right well y'all uh, y'all want to go ahead and, and dig into this let's do it all right we begin the SEC East spring leaning with the Georgia Bulldogs. 12-2 last year, 7-1 in conference play, captured their third straight SEC East conference crown. Uh, Jake Fromm ends up going 35-7 and as a starting quarterback across his career before declaring to the NFL draft, which brings us to one of the most intriguing talking points around the Bulldogs heading into next season, the arrival of Jamie Newman, quarterback from Wake Forest, uh, to take over what could be a totally, and I say could, could be a totally reimagined offense under the leadership of new offensive coordinator Todd Munkin. Matt Luke, who showed up on staff uh, after his ouster at Ole Miss, is also kind of paired into this picture as he's the the offensive line coach, and he's going to have an offensive line that has bodies there but does need to replace four starters. And uh, the pass game, George Pickens was a great talent who flashed at times, but I mean, I'm, I'm looking around like is Demetrius Robertson, who's now like in his, you know, seventh year of being in our world. Is this when he finally shows up? Uh, is Dominic Blaylock going to be healthy when he comes back from an ACL injury? But we do know that the defense is going to be good. So as are you more intrigued by looking at Georgia through the lens of what it could be offensively, or are you even thinking big picture and trying to measure Georgia up against the best teams in the country? We've got a, a regular season m meeting with Alabama that's going to totally dictate the SEC championship race in both games. And then, of course, they've got Florida nipping at their heels. So where do you want to start with the offense, or is, is the big picture stuff more exciting to you as we look at our beloved Georgia Bulldogs? I just – I think – 
the offense is the thing that's obviously the big sticking point. Like that, that's the that's the critical piece of the puzzle. That's the that's the skeleton key. And everyone, when you talk about Georgia, everyone brushes off the offense like it's a lost cause. Like the look what they've done in the past. You know they lost all those offensive linemen. Uh, who's the receiver that's going to be their playmaker? Like because when you compare them to LSU, that's that's what the response is. Because ultimately, that's how that's the best case scenario for Georgia is what LSU did. LSU Georgia's got two number one recruiting classes in the last three years. Uh, they have talent there. Are they ever going to be dynamic? enough to make a a national championship run like LSU did last year does Kirby hand over the keys like we've talked about does the offense open up does the quarterback play good enough and everyone's always like well like they've not done it before they're not gonna like how can you predict that and yeah fair but this is what's interesting about Georgia because you couldn't have predicted LSU based on what they had been doing over the previous years. Like we all knew how much talent was on the roster, but you couldn't have predicted that that leap based on what they were doing previously. Like I'm going to read you just, and th- I just pulled this up right right as we were getting on this call, just because I was interested. I didn't know it, but I want to read you two number two two sets of data here. One is uh, two receiving yard data. Okay, all right, so. Uh, 727 yards receiving, 476 yards receiving, 333 yards receiving, 310 yards receiving, 255 yards receiving, 216 yards receiving. All right. Then the next the next group is 875, 363, 313, 307, 274, 272. Like which of those receiving cores is more talented? Can you tell by one or the other? Like is 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 No. I can't. That's the that's the 2019 Georgia receivers and the 2018 LSU receivers. Like Jamar Chase as a true freshman had 23 catches for 313 yards and three touchdowns at LSU. As a true freshman he was their third leading receiver. George Pickens as a true freshman, 49 catches, 727 yards and eight touchdowns. Uh, like the only guy really leaving of note from that Georgia group is Lawrence Cager. Um, DeAndre Smith was that number six receiver with 216 yards. Tyler Simmons is gone, but they have one of the best receiving classes in the country coming in. Uh, so you'd imagine a couple of those guys can make an impact. All those LSU guys were coming back with the exception of D Anderson, basically the number five and number six guys. Um, I just think it's like the players are there without a doubt. The players are there. Does that mean they have to make a jump? It depends on what happens with Todd Monken. It depends on what happens with Jamie Newman. It depends on what happens with Kirby Smart. But the players are there on offense. I, I, I can't like – I believe in that to my core. I'm just very fascinated to see whether they get unleashed – like LSU's guys got unleashed. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, we, as you mentioned kind of at the top, Chip, but do we focus on the offense or the bigger picture? I, I think when we look at this defense, 
I think we're probably all overlooking it a little too much, but at the same time, it was such a good defense last year and most of the guys are back that you kind of just assume. And I think that the reason you want to focus on the offense is because that is where all the questions lie. There are so many return, you know, starters from last year's unit gone, key players that have to produce, you know, at quarterback, on the offensive line, in the run game, at receiver. And then there's the change at offensive coordinator. And then there's, you know, Jamie Newman coming back. Now, as the world's preeminent Georgia pod, we all know that Georgia is going undefeated and will win the national title and will probably put together the greatest offense, football, not just college football, football, football. NFL, <laughs> CFL, college, European soccer, football period, has ever seen. But let's just say there's a chance it doesn't happen. Now, I'm going to play some devil's advocate here. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Because Sports Info Solutions site is down, its data hub is down, so I can't look at them. But I will say, as I was doing research for something earlier this week on another topic, I noticed that the on-target rate of Jamie Newman's passes, in other words, his accuracy, it's not his completion percentage, it's how many of his passes were put in the place they needed to be to be caught, was very, very poor. And I was like, okay, well, let's let's try to compare this to Joe Burrow. See if maybe you know Burrow's accuracy the year before in a in a state offense was bad, I and like then getting. Going. I don't like where this is going, Tom. This this do you like this is a Georgia pod through and through, and you're and you the, the negativity <laughs> that's I'm, just emanating from your mic right now. Is I'm about just to put me in a saying. Seat. I'm just saying that. We all know they're going to win the national title. I mean, for the love of God, you know, you look at mock drafts, <laughs> early mock drafts for next spring. Jamie Newman's a top 10 pick like yeah. everywhere you look. That's right. If, if you look at Heisman odds, Jamie Newman is the third best favorite behind only Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. There is no doubt that Georgia is the greatest football team in the history of football. But Jamie Newman has flaws and his arm is not very accurate. And it's like Joe Burrow's accuracy, even in the bad LSU offense was still pretty much on point. And yes, it got better last year when he was in an offense better suited to him. But it's also important to remember that it's not like Jamie Newman is coming from a completely different offense in the one that he played in at Wake Forest into the one that we're assuming he'll be playing in at Georgia. There's going to be a lot of similarities between them and his accuracy I mean, pretty much every category I was looking at from distance of like the, the the air yards of the throws, every sample size, he was either at the bottom or very, very close to the bottom. And I think that is something that maybe we should just keep in the back of our minds before at we... Bottom or close to the bottom of, of what list, of what group? Of every FBS quarterback who, th- you know, like who threw... A certain so he's amount of one of the least accurate quarterbacks in FBS last year. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! Exposed. <laughs> the Georgia like... quarterback exposed on the Georgia pod. And again, I wish I had the numbers available, but the, the data hub is down, and I can't get in. But I mean, it was. Well, hey, I mean, I you could just you could just go by. You could even just go by regular old completion percentage because even in regular completion percentage, he's near the bottom of the ACC at 60.9. Yeah, but even that can always be misleading because like in 2018, Joe Burrow's completion rate was really low, 
but LSU's receivers also had an inordinately high drop rate. And you looked if you looked at the difference between his completion percentage and his on target rate, there was a huge disparity between the two, like more than you would expect. Like there's always going to be a difference when you're looking at any quarterback simply because not every catchable ball is going to be caught. But looking at Newman's on target rate compared to his completion rate really wasn't a huge difference. And that brings me to my next sort of step in this, because as you've been uh, sort of circling this, I've been trying to work through it in my mind. And again, we do know that the Georgia offense is going to field the best offense in the history of football, period. <laughs> going to win every game by 50 points. 15-0 and 0 national disclaimer. champions. But if Jamie Newman is a little bit inaccurate, and if those accuracy issues uh, pose a threat to overall team success in the eyes of head coach Kirby Smart, I wonder if just handing the ball off to Zamir White, Zeus, and James Cook is just going to seem more appealing, you know? Like, I just, I wonder if all of the on-paper excitement, like, it to me, it relies on Jamie Newman playing mostly mistake-free football. And if he does, then Todd Monken will be allowed to cook. Um, you know, Jamie Newman... Like, do you remember when J.W. Walsh was uh, was running Oklahoma State's offense? Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to go back and do some tape work there because that was a Todd Monken offensive coordinator with a quarterback who presented a threat also in the run game. But there there is, even looking at what Wake did last year, considering the incredible upgrade in, in talent that you're doing uh, in terms of the supporting cast, there's absolutely the, the scenario that Georgia's offense is – Sort of like LSU, one of the big stories of the SEC and of the entire college football playoff race. No, excuse me. It is. We know that. But if Mm -hmm. Jamie Newman is a little bit loose with that ball, I could see Georgia just sort of going back into that comfortable place, you know? Just just slipping on that T-shirt that's a little bit worn through. Like, I'm trying to get all my Fanatics T-shirts from Tom washed extra time so that they can get into that comfortable, oh, worn so in. Yeah, that's su- super soft. I think that the super soft, you know, um, the, the super soft power or the super soft, like, sweep right is going to end up looking a lot better to Kirby Smart than uh, – than trying to put the entire fate of the team in Jamie Newman's hands. What is is there is there a world? I'm just pulling up the schedule here real quick. All right, so Georgia plays uh, base parents basement internet uh, Alabama loading, parents basement internet loading. All right, so they play <laughs> they play uh, Virginia. All right, to open the season, right? Win by fifty. Yeah, mash right. sauce. Okay, so they go they go. East Tennessee State. All right, we're still like Jamie Newman world. Like seventy-three any, to nothing. Anything that happens like negative, we're we're excusing it. Okay, then it was Alabama. Whatever. Like it's just forty-two to three home. dogs. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's just say Alabama wins that game, and Jamie Newman has a couple of critical turnovers, and then let's say Jamie Newman gets in his head a little bit. Gets in his own head. UL Monroe, it doesn't. He doesn't blow it out of the water as much as he'd like. They beat Vanderbilt, but again, Jamie Newman t- turns the football over <clears throat> too many times. Is there any chance that trotting out on the field at Sanford Stadium on October 10th is none other than 
Stetson Bennett. Yes. Taking center. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just to hand that damn ball off. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and that's then, the and then we're back in our comfort. Then we're back in our Georgia <laughs> comfort zone. Yeah, it's like I understand that Jamie Newman transferred in and there's the, the offense and there's the whole like, okay, they're the new LSU and he's going to be the Joe Burrow because Joe Burrow was a transfer. But like Georgia has capable dudes on the depth chart that aren't Jamie Newman at quarterback. So you're going to give you're going to give Stetson Bennett the nod as a capable dude. I, yeah. I will say that we have, as a matter of, you know, covering the sport, we have consistently set the bar too high for transfer quarterbacks. And I think that taking spring practice and fall camp and whatever uh, obstacles are going to have to be overcome in order to bring Jamie Newman as up to speed as possible, I think that those would factor in. I mean, I, there, so many times we've pointed to uh, – you know, like not that we promised uh, a quarterback was going to be able to save the day for a team, but we're like, oh yeah, 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 pencil him in as the starter, and then he, what happens? He ends up losing the starting job like three or four games into the season, doesn't work out. And I, you've got to at least take that as a consideration. And you know what, Stetson Bennett also handing that ball off, fifteen and zero national championship. Well, yeah, you know. As a Georgia podcast, it's a very Georgia podcast of us to pencil in that national championship with the most Georgia-named quarterback of all time, Stetson Bennett, <laughs> under center. So we're back, we're back in a happy place all, all the way around. I mean, if we, if we want the title game to be any good, it should just be Georgia's <laughs> A team versus Georgia's B team. It should be Jamie Newman versus Stetson Bennett or Dwan Mathis or Carson Beck, whoever emerges as the number two. The uh, but, oh, go ahead. Def, def, I mean, de- defensively, we, we barely touched on the defense. I think it's worth noting, and the reason there's there, regardless of who's a quarterback, we still got some confidence in this roster. It's this stacked. Yeah. It is like name the position and then take the starters, the starters out, and and send them to the showers. Give me the backups, and we're still in pretty good shape. I don't care what position you're talking about. So it's a it's it's a pretty pretty salty group. Won't won't allow a touchdown with a margin less than thirty all season long. I think there's going to be set seven players from the Georgia defense drafted next year. Very possible, yeah. Got a couple seniors coming back and uh, a couple of sophomores who are going to be in big spots going into their junior season. Dogs, uh, obviously, favorite of this podcast the podcast's official prediction to win the SEC East. But the aiming at Georgia year after year, and, and now more than ever, are the Florida Gators. They were 11-2 last year, 6-2 and two in SEC play. It's three straight losses to Georgia, but Dan Mullen has 21 wins and back-to-back New Year's Six Bowl victories in the last two seasons. Gators fans feel it. There's confidence behind Kyle Trask after his strong performance taking over for Felipe Franks last year. You've got Kyle Pitts as one of the conference's best tight ends. And then, you know, we still got Emory Jones wondering what his role might look like and, and how those snaps are split up defensively I do think we're losing uh, a couple like Jonathan Grenard was awesome for them coming in from Louisville last year then you're also losing Jabari Zuniga CJ Henderson some some key pieces that need to be made up I have some question about whether this is going to be 
uh, a really elite championship level defense, though they certainly have done a pretty good job. And they do get former Georgia linebacker Brenton Cox, a five-star uh, eligible. Also on the eligibility note, uh, Barton, do we know if former Penn State wide receiver Justin Shorter is going to be eligible or is that another waiver situation? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Could be. Stay tuned. Gosh. Uh, skill positions a little bit unknown, but not untalented. And uh, am I wrong for like we we all turned in our coach ranking ballots? Uh, am I wrong for leaning too much on Dan Mullen to believe that Florida's offense is going to have a certain level of success even after losing Lamichael P Ryan, a really really productive player over several years for the Gators, and a few other key players at wide receiver? Like I almost say, even if he's just got. A couple fast dudes. I just think, well, yeah, he'll he'll figure an offense out. They'll figure out ways to do it. Am I am I leaning too much on Dan Mullen to just sort of figure it out offensively, uh, regardless of what kind of turnover we've got on the depth chart? I feel like that's the bet. I feel like the bet's on Dan Mullen. I feel like you're. We we've come to expect a certain level of coaching acumen from Dan Mullen. Um, and I, I don't know that if you just look at the pieces on offense that this is like a I don't know like this isn't this isn't a group that where the sum of its parts and you line it up across the best groups in college football and and I'm not sure how many you're going to point to the to the Florida offensive unit and say. I'll take that those guys. Yeah, yeah, like if you were to say who's got the best wide receiver room, the best running back room, the best offensive line room, like Florida doesn't win many of those com- conversations. I don't think so. I mean, they they Kyle Pitts is certainly that kind of player, but I don't I don't think they do on offensive line. I think you know their their wide receiver group. They lost their best guys from last year. Really, I mean, I, I think Kadarius Tony is a really good player. Trevon Grimes. We're still kind of waiting on him, I think. Um, you know, hey, look, some one of these guys, one of these guys at redshirt last year, maybe steps up, um, or maybe one of the true freshmen, you know, CJ Henderson's little brother, maybe he he's an instant impact kind of guy. But I think across across the board, it's it's they're good, they're high quality, but they're not. Again, throw them out there on the playground and then throw the rest of the top 15 teams in the country and throw their guys out there on offense. And I'm not sure you're going to point to the Florida guys. And so then I think it gets to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not confident in Florida to have a really good offense because like you said, ship, I think that's just sort of where I'm at. I just kind of trust Dan Mullen to figure something out and piece it all together and make his personnel work. So, um, I mean, he did it in Starkville. You know, yeah. the, like the dudes that he had around Dak Prescott were not ones that I was going into the season uh, with on my watch list. And, you know, they were able to figure it out. And I think that that plus even the way that at the skill positions at Florida and the time that he's been here sometimes duck my expectations. It was like, oh, that guy's getting a lot of touches. OK, all right. Like I just I think that all of that sort of goes back to me thinking if he did it in Starkville, then I shouldn't be too concerned from a personnel standpoint about whether he can do it in Gainesville. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not worried about this offense that much. I don't know if there's like a star that we know of just yet or a star yet to emerge, but I, I'm with you yeah. guys. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think that this is a team that's no matter what, 
it might be a different player every single week for all we know that's kind of shining. I, but I think they're going to get their points. I think that Dan Mullen, as you guys were you know, pretty much saying, it's he's shown throughout the course of his coaching career that I know how to score points. I know how to call plays. I know how to do that. So when I look at this team, I don't know what the ceiling is. I think a lot of that will depend on, Barton, you mentioned like the, you know, the redshirt freshmen or the sophomores from last year and maybe the incoming freshmen because they've had two really good recruiting classes in a row. So if those guys coming in are able to make an impact and able to increase, you know, the potential of this team right away, then yeah, this is a team that, you know, I mean, it's not going to win the East because, you know, Georgia 15 to know never losing a game, but it's a team that's definitely going to be a contender in the division and can win the East. And it's like, I don't think when I look at this roster going into the year, I think the best way I could say is I feel like a disastrous season is still nine and three. Hmm. So I guess the, the question with, with Florida is if a meteor hits the Georgia campus Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, maybe that they they all get some sort of um, infection or something. Maybe that's not Too the soon. time to joke about that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you edit that out. Uh, <laughs> let's just say, all right. Let's just say, look, we all we all know that Georgia's going to win a national title, but let's just say that there's a chance they don't. Uh, can can Florida beat Georgia in the SEC East? Yeah, I'll yeah. say it. Yeah. yeah, I think they can. They can. I think I mean, that Florida. I think Florida has a better chance <laughs> against other teams that we would consider like top fifteen teams, or maybe even a couple other teams that we would consider top ten teams. Florida's got the kind of squad that I would trust in a kickoff classic or a bowl game. But when it comes to that game against Georgia in Jacksonville, I think it's more of a matter of physics than it is football. Halloween, too, this year. I mean, Bulldogs just look – I mean, getting off the bus, when those two teams are on the field warming up, Georgia looks bigger and stronger. Yeah, they just – they look like, you know, NFL guys. Whereas Florida's got NFL guys, but they don't really have that kind of imposing physique. I do think this is going to be an interesting year for Florida because – I, I've, I think that they've recruited pretty well the last couple cycles. Um, and in particular, you know, there's some impact guys, this, this freshman class of uh, German Dexter comes to mind as just a beast on the defensive line. Uh, but this would be, so like the 2018 class, they were ranked 14th, 2017, they were ranked 11th. So I guess these, these, those two classes, um, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, like your point. I mean, those are the type of, uh, Georgia's contending for number one classes. And in, in these, the two classes that are coming home to roost on this roster, they're more top 15 classes. Um, and it, it'll just be interesting to see. I mean, look, development matters and Florida's as good as anyone at development. Uh, in fact, you can make a case that Kerner's developing their, their stars, they're four star top two four seven kind of guys. They are a top five team uh, based on the studies we've done at twenty four seven sports. But uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting test of that because I do think from a just pure eyeball talent, Georgia probably 
is is a clear step above Florida. Doesn't mean they're better. Doesn't mean those guys, those players are better. I'm just saying in terms of when they walked in the door three or four years ago, you know, I think Georgia's guys were were considered the better group. Here, here's a bit of a fun thought experiment. Would Florida be better off if Emory Jones outplays Kyle Trask and takes over the starting quarterback job? Like if Jones plays well enough to earn the starting job, would that would that improve what you think of Florida's chances to win the division? See, I think that is a fun thought experiment because for for whatever reason, Florida fans are very that they believe strongly that they have one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Kyle Trask, and they believe it seems fairly strongly that they have the best quarterback in the SEC in Kyle Trask. And I don't know the answer to that question, Tom, but I think it's a I, I think it's an interesting one because what did Kyle Trask do so well last year? It's basically be really accurate and really efficient in the quick game yeah. in those quick hitter slants the the catch and run routes and then Josh Hammond and Freddie Swain and Van Jefferson and those guys would go to work well I don't know how good this next crop of receivers are maybe they're just as good but if there's a step back then yeah to your point you wonder if is there is there more offensive juice in Emory Jones's legs and there are in Kyle Trask's arms. You know why they like Kyle Trask, right? His face. He waited his turn. No, I mean doesn't doesn't he's got a little bit of the like that square head, rigid jawline, you know oh, the no. the little bit of the chin strap sort of accentuates it. And you can almost just see him morph into number fifteen. Oh no. Look at him. Look at him. He's homegrown. He's, he's taking us back. <laughs> uh, I've, I've heard Kyle Trask's post-game interviews, though. I'm not sure he's ever going to be firing up the troops quite like Tebow. That's hey, that is that is fair. <laughs> um, all right, coming up on the other side, we continue our look through the SEC East with Jeremy Pruitt and Tennessee Vols next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What a formative... Uh, 2019 it was for the Tennessee Volunteers. One and four to start the season. I mean, just hands up in the air. So much frustration. Year two for Jeremy Pruitt off to an, a terrible start. Circling the wagons. They win six of their final seven games and finish eight and five with a winning record in conference play. Five and three 
they come back into this season uh, hot off of a strong 2020 recruiting class. As, as Barton can tell you, they have been crushing it here in the last couple of weeks uh, of April or in the last couple of weeks in 2020 for the 2021 class. A lot of momentum. Trey Smith is back. Cade Mays transferring in from Georgia. But Jarrett Guarantano, Jarrett Guarantano, we have discussed him, especially when we talk about you know transfer quarterbacks. Would JT Daniels potentially be interested in Tennessee? I think that greatly changes the outlook for the Tennessee offense. But even with Jarrett Guarantano, I do think that we have at least a proven SEC starter. Uh, defensively, we think this team could be really, really good. You know, with with everything going on around Tennessee right now, with the the success on the recruiting trail, the hype machine is go, is firing back up. Are we, uh, I guess, the places of concern? Number one, do we think that having a bunch of turnover on the coaching staff is necessarily a bad thing, or do we just chalk that up as life in the SEC? Because mo- as we've gone through here, most of the SEC has had at least a couple of positions on each staff. And then, you know, the the next part of this, even with the new staff being able to have some success, are, are we buying in that in year three we will see uh, that gap continuing to be closed against the best teams in the conference? I feel like I, I, I'm trying not to – one of the harder things for me is, you know, like Tennessee in the last few weeks has been just having a great time recruiting. And there's a lot of – you know, optimism based on that. I don't want to have that kind of cloud my judgment of where I think this team is entering, you know, the 2020 season. Because I do think that in the East, clearly, you know, Georgia and Florida are the two teams that everybody look at as the class of the division, the two teams that are going to win, you know, the division. But I feel like if the of the other teams, if one of the other five were to win the East, I feel like Tennessee is the most likely one to do it. It's just... I don't say that in a way where I'm super optimistic about how good the Vols are going to be because, you know, Jarek Grantano, he's a he's a fifth-year senior, but he's en- he's been a starter for how long, and he's entering the season. The job's, you know, it's his job, but it's not really totally his job, and that's never a good sign when your fifth-year senior doesn't have a firm grasp on the job when he had it the last couple of years. But maybe, you know, if it, so that could be something that hamstrings him. And my other concern with them, too, is, you know, obviously they lose Callaway and Jennings at receiver, which is big. But for me, it's more the offensive line because I feel like often a good offensive line is important to any offense. I don't care, you know, where you are. But I feel like when you're in the SEC in particular, having a middling to below average offensive line is a real handicap. And that's kind of what Tennessee had last year. So I feel like for this team to take that major step forward, the offensive line has to improve from what we saw last year. And I think getting Trey Smith back is a big thing for them. But I just think that other spots of the line were not exactly great and they need to have a much better season if they're going to start tapping into the potential that I think we're starting to see based on the way they're recruiting. So I I don't think it's going to be a bad year in Tennessee, but I do think that maybe expectations are being raised a little too quickly in the minds of some for what this team can be in 2020. So I think in terms of the offensive line, am I, am I being a little bit too much into the recency of recruiting to have a lot of confidence in it. Uh, look, Wanya Morris starting left tackle as a true freshman. I'm not saying he was perfect, but 
going into sophomore year, former top 50 kind of recruit with that experience, you know, he's got the body type. There's reason to believe he could be pretty solid. I think Trey Smith, uh, you, you, no, nothing needs to be said. He's a first round draft pick, assuming he's healthy. Brandon Kennedy at center, red shirt senior, uh, sixth year guy. Uh, I think he's pretty capable. Keep in mind, assuming he gets eligible, and I guess we don't know that for sure. I oh, don't Cade think Mays. Cade Mays, like like multi year starter at Georgia for the effectively, probably your right guard starter, if not your right tackle starter, and and then at right tackle is another five-star kind of guy and Darnell Wright who played a lot as a true freshman so if you assume some highly regarded players take a step forward offensive line could be a strength um I agree like Jared Guarantano I don't even know if there was any guarantee he was going to be the starter but now that the spring has come and gone without a whole lot of mm-hmm. uh, opportunity for Harrison Bailey I, I, I guess I assume he will be the starter barring a J. Daniels transfer. Eric is really good. I don't think see anyone that gets me too, um, you know, that that strikes fear in the heart of me as a former DB in that receiving. You know, we'll see what happens from a developmental standpoint. And then I do think defensively, Tennessee will be again. I think they'll be better than last year. I think they'll be the next next step. So. All that said, I, like, I think Tennessee's going to be a better team than they were last year. And as I pull up the schedule, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily this thing like surge to nine and three or something. Um, I just think that they're heading in the right direction. They showed to me, even in the Alabama game, just like still being in that game late, I thought that was uh, a big time affirmation of just sort of trying to build out the the toughness of that team from you know defense offensive line things like that so if they like i i position tennessee above uh i I position them above missouri south carolina vanderbilt it's tough that you always get alabama as your cross division draw but you know they tennessee might be stuck in one of those positions where they've got a 10 and 2 team with an 8 and 4 record and i could see that happening yeah, because like you mentioned, nine and three. It's like if they're going to get to nine and three, they have to win at, at least one of these games. First, Florida at Oklahoma versus Alabama at Georgia. And it's like, I don't know which one of those is the most winnable. Maybe so I, I think Florida at home. I think they're good enough to get. I think that they've, I think the key to this Tennessee team, like the key to this next step for Tennessee, is I, I think we can pencil in six wins. Uh, yes. You know, you, they'll beat Charlotte and Furman. And they'll that's beat, a step forward from recent years. Right, right, exactly. They'll beat Vandy and Troy. They'll, uh, yeah, I don't know how Troy is. Maybe Troy is a sneaky good team. But I, I suspect they'll beat Vandy and Troy. I think they'll beat Arkansas. And and then they probably get at least one of Missouri, South Carolina. And then, you know, and then let's roll the ball out and see what happens on the other ones. But that's, like you said, Tom, like, I think that's that's not as like – that's not a backhanded compliment that they're good enough to, to pencil in six wins. I think that's where this program needs to be. Let's get the six wins and then let's be competitive everywhere else. And you know what? You might, you might lose a couple of those toss ups that you won last year, but be, be competitive. Look, you know, make, make the product look good. And I think it's, it's still a step forward. Look the part. Look, look, look to 
what is what's the the phrase? You gotta fake it, fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. That's probably not. That's probably, that's probably not apt. <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> just advice. Be just be it. No, no, it's just not, fake it. Fake it's it. Not what we want out of this Tennessee team. Just be it. Be good enough. Be close. Was, be was, it. See it and you'll be it. We be it and you'll see it. How about be that? it till be it till they see it. There we go. <laughs> uh, the Kentucky Wildcats. They've been uh, dressing for the job that they want, and uh, the, there you go. Yeah, the job they want is to just be a a real thorn in the hide of of anybody that they play. I mean, first you thought it was just with this great front seven and lockdown defense. Well, then last year, because of injuries, they paired it with an all-purpose everything. Lynn Bowden just running it down teams' throats for 200 yards a game. Now, Lynn Bowden is gone, but uh, the quarterback position does have familiar names because of some of the injuries they've had there. Terry Wilson, who had a good 2018 but was hurt in 2019, we're checking in on his health. Sawyer Smith is back up, is there. Joey Gatewood, the transfer from Auburn, would need a waiver to be eligible in 2020, but uh, but he's committed to the program as well. They need to figure out a way to develop some consistency in the running game. Obviously, that's not Lynn Bowden, and they've got some turnover on the offensive line that's going to contribute to the concerns about how effective they're going to be there. But one of the things that I'm excited is we started to apply this Mark Stoops Kentucky defense um, these these assumptions not all that different from the way that we talk about Dan Mullen and offense. I just I think that these Mark Stoops Kentucky teams are going to be expected to have good defenses. And honestly, when the defense falls off, that's when I'm going to start getting worried about whatever Kentucky stock I've got. This year's defense has some uh, has some good players on the back end of it. We could see some some secondary players end up being some of the best in in the conference. And so, you know, the way that they piece it together, how they end up defending uh, different teams could could be a little bit different, but something where I'm going to have faith in that Kentucky staff to get it done. So for the Wildcats coming off an 8 and 5 overall record, 3 and 5 in conference play, is there any concern that as some of the teams that are behind them last year are desperate to claw up uh, what gives you confidence that Kentucky is going to be able to hold on to its place right there in the middle of the division? I, when I first started looking at just sort of the, this Kentucky roster, um, I was kind of looking at it position by position. And the first thing I wrote was improved quarterback play. And then I sort of caught myself and I added a punctuation to make it say improved quarterback play because <laughs> I, 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 I suddenly realized like, what, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know. Like, I guess the pass game might be improved, but what do you guys think? Like if Terry Wilson is a, is the starting quarterback, let's make that assumption first. And Mark Stoops seems to love Terry Wilson for whatever reason. Um, then is, is it, like, do we consider the quarterback position improved this year or not? I I don't know. That's that's my thing. Trying to figure out what Kentucky's going to be is that I the quarterback position is so up in the air between you know it's like I don't maybe it's Wilson maybe it's Sawyer Smith maybe it's Gatewood. The thing is, of all those options, there isn't one where I sit there and. You know, there, there's not a guy that you sit there and think, well, if he wins, they'll be fine. 
You know what I mean? It's there's it's each one of those guys is like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's hard to really get a read on Kentucky overall as a team if you don't know what you're going to have at quarterback. And I think well, what about the, this? Do you think that Kentucky in 20, not in 2020, in 2019, would Kentucky have been better with Terry Wilson at quarterback no. and Lynn Bowden at receiver? Or they've been better with Lynn Bowden at quarterback like they were? I th- I think. Well, it's, it's I, I think that it's a little bit tricky because Terry Wilson, even when he's at his best and most effective, isn't. I mean, he's he's averaging like twenty pass attempts per game. Yeah, like he's, he's a game manager. Yeah, he that's that's kind of he's if he can get out there, throw twenty passes, and be a seventy percent passer, then that should be and not have too many turnovers. That should be good enough to win. I mean, he was. He's he's perfect. He's he's replacement player. He's seven yards per attempt. Mm-hmm. That's what Terry Wilson is. Seven see, yards per attempt. Thing. But that's the thing, though, because if if you've got like a game manager at quarterback in this division now, where Georgia's, you know, Georgia, Florida, we know they're going to have a great offense. Tennessee seems to be a team that could very much be on the rise. I don't. I mean, if Kentucky's plan this year is to go out there and win with defense and just you know not make mistakes on offense, score enough points to get by. Who exactly do they have the advantage on defensively, where they can get by being sub, you know, below average on offense compared to their counterparts? And that's why I mean, it's really hard for me because it's like, yeah, I'm confident that their defense is going to be fine. It's it's a Mark Stoops team, like you said, Chip. The defense is going to be good. It's just I don't know where this team's points are going to come from and how they're going to score enough points to really compete week in week out against you know the better teams if they want to stay in that kind of upper tier of the conference is like you know not upper tier but you know they've started creeping more towards above the middle above average like two years ago they were five and three in conference last year they dropped back to three and five and i feel like three and five is a likely outcome again in conference play this year unless something unexpected happens at quarterback and somebody takes a huge leap forward just because i don't think the ceiling is very high so here's what they like. Here's one option. Let's assume Joey Gatewood gets eligible. Ooh, just just run it back from last year. Lynn Bowden, like, the same offense. Throw the big, throw the big athlete back there. Get in your single wing offense, and and let's just let's just do it again. Let's just winter stays. You know, like the because Joey Gatewood's sort of a freak athlete, and and this. This running back field is pretty good. I think they have a pretty good, pretty talented running back group. Like, I don't know if there are any of them are first rounders, but like they're they got several guys that can make plays. And I think this offensive line is like kind of really good. Like they've done such a good job on the offensive lines. One of the, I think, more under like appreciated nationally groups is just the Kentucky offensive line year in and year out. I think this is another really good group. And so can you just get behind the guys with a 6'5", 230-pound quarterback who can run and just uh, let loose a little bit? I don't know. Maybe you can tell you just like roll out there and just, hey, they got all they got the quarantine to kind of go into hiding, and maybe they should come out of this hibernation just running the triple, just line up and running like wing T or something and just own it. But I kind of like, – I don't – I almost like that idea – Better than Terry the, Wilson, the alternative. Yeah, like I, I don't, nothing against Terry Wilson, 
I just wonder if they're more dangerous like that, if the Lynn Bowden offense is here to stay. Like a Lynn Bowden offense, but with an actual passing threat or resemblance of a passing threat. Yeah, though, I mean, Joey, Joey Gatewood. Gatewood. Like, <laughs> not not <markedly laughs> that's more efficient as a high school thrower than Lynn Bowden was. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like with Gatewood, you have to think about it's like, okay, well, he couldn't beat Bo Nix <laughs> for the starting job at Auburn. And Bo Nix, not exactly anybody I would consider to be a top flight thrower of the football. Hey, we got what you you hang on to the to those uh to that Auburn hate. We've got we we've got time to talk about the putt putt offense when we get to the SEC West. <laughs> uh anything else on Kentucky standing out? Uh I do think they're I, like you guys have mentioned. Like I I I think their defense is really good and I think and and ultimately the the conundrum that we've found ourselves in as we discuss Kentucky is the Basically, like the optics, like the visual. How do you visualize what a Kentucky win looks like? And it's hard, but it's always hard. And that's basically been the calling card of Mark Stoops' teams. And so I'm actually coming to this season a little bit more optimistic than most with Kentucky, than most seasons with Kentucky, because the sort of the proof of concept is there sure. and i think the, the the similar like there are very similar ingredients to this team to the ones that have had a lot of success in the past so i, I think this team could be pretty good you know do they go and win the east i'm not saying that but i think that they could like be playing in really meaningful games in november the missouri tigers went six and six three and five in conference play last year five and one to start the year and then oh boy bottom fell out one in five to finish the season. Uh, the bowl ban from the NCAA is upheld, and Barry Odom is out, replaced by Eli Drinkwitz, who is 13 and one in his only season as a head coach with Appalachian State last season. Now, uh, I don't think there's going to be any cookie cutter here in terms of what to expect from Eli Drinkwitz, former NC State. Uh, and Boise State offensive coordinator, he himself describes a you know tempo, no huddle, downhill running game, vertical passing game. But he also you know copied and pasted most of his Appalachian speech to Missouri, and you know who knows if that was included there too. Uh, quarterback is a huge question mark. I think we've don't we have Larry Roundtree back for another season? I believe so. Like running back Larry Roundtree the third, yeah. uh, very very productive. Uh, but they've got a lot to replace on the offensive side. Defensively, you've got some players like linebacker Nick Bolton, who was very good last season, but you've also got a lot of the, or at least a couple of the Missouri defensive assistants from Barry Odom's staff. I feel like the Tigers under Barry Odom and over the last couple of years, you know, like they had Drew Locke, but it didn't feel like they were always lighting the world on fire. They were good to get caught up in a, a couple a couple shootouts per season, but felt like it's it's pretty much maintained that reputation of being uh, a defense with some some pretty solid players, particularly up front. Hopefully, some of that can carry over for Drinkwitz. But a uh, lot of question marks here. You know, Eli Drinkwitz is the only new head coach in this side, uh, in this division. And so it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. What's the, what's, what, what's the floor look like? How about that? Yeah, what's the floor look like for Missouri football? Could be bad in you, 2020. Okay. I mean, I just based off, because it's, it's really hard to get a read simply because this is another one of those cases where you've got a new head coach and Drinkwitz is coming in. He's installing his new offense. 
but he hasn't had a spring to do it. He might not have much of a summer to do it. So he hasn't really had the chance to get to know his players, to get to find out who's more of a fit for what he wants to do compared with what's been on the roster for what they had been doing. So he's losing all the ability to do that. And plus, he's got to do it behind an offensive line that last year in adjusted line yards ranked 82nd in the country. So it wasn't a great offensive line. And it's losing three multi-year starters from that unit. So you've got a new offensive line needing it to take a step forward with new faces. You've got a new offense in place, and you're not quite sure who's going to be stepping in where to fill it out. Like The defense, I think, will still be solid at worst because there there are some good players on that defense. It's just... I mean, I, the offense could be a complete disaster, and that's not. To, and it might not be anything to do with Drinkwitz. It might just be a victim of circumstance in that fact. Whereas, if I'm entering 2020 as a Missouri fan, I'm not expecting it to be horrible, but I think that I have to accept the fact that there's a decent chance that things could go really poorly, and we're looking at like a three, four win team here. Um. So, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? The unstoppable force being uh, Eli Drinkwitz's ability to uh, limit turnovers. The immovable object being Sean Robinson's ability to create turnovers at quarterback. (laughs) And so, that is going to be what I'm watching. Because Sean Robinson's really good at turning the football over. Eli Drinkwitz is really good at limiting them. And who's going to win in that <laughs> battle royale? Former TCU quarterback Sean, Sean Robinson. Robinson is, former TCU quarterback. He's he's a pretty talented kid. He's got a big arm, pretty athletic. He's come. He's, he's dealt with injuries, but he he turns the ball over. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of variance in his play and like what like the he can have like a really impressive plays he can have really impressive games he can have really bad plays he can have really bad games and so given like that this I do think they have good like good running backs that helps and I think that that's ultimately what Eli Drinkwitz wants to lean on is 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 uh, you know a run game needs to really help out his passing game so I think that's in place, but like Tom said, I think the the like this is this is a team that could have used a spring practice, uh, and I, I don't know that. And without a spring practice, I'm not sure how much confidence I have in them. So this is a very much like I'd say this is my biggest question mark of any team in the SEC East in terms of not really knowing what to expect. Yeah, to give to give context on Sean Robinson. In 2018, he began the season as TCU's starting quarterback. He started and finished six games. His seventh game he started, but he played really poorly and did not finish the game. But in the six games he started and finished, he threw interceptions in five of them. And in three of them, he threw two interceptions. He's not the most secure. <laughs> But it's he'll he's, throw a fumble in there. Twice oh, and he'll fumble well, too when he takes off. Count yeah. those. Yeah. So have fun, Missouri fans. That's um, that's what you got to look forward to in 2020. Those uh, concerns are probably good news to the ears of South Carolina Gamecocks fans. South Carolina went four and eight last season overall, three and five in conference play, and and it was a strange three and five. So South Carolina has been uh, like 
this had this weird thing with Kentucky. They haven't been able to get over Kentucky. Well, they got over Kentucky, but uh, they lost a lot of other games. They they got they beat Georgia. They beat Georgia, our beloved Bulldogs in Athens, uh, but lost in a lot of other games. The offense was uh, was really struggling. Uh, Ryan Halinski thrown into the fire after Jake, for, because of Jake Bentley's injury. Uh, you know he even got a little bit injured and banged up during the season too. And so the offense was really bad. They make a change there. We've got a lot of reassigned coaches, like Brian McClendon, who was the offensive coordinator, has been reassigned to a different role. Bobby Bentley, Jake Bentley's father, has been reassigned to a different role. And Mike Bobo, former Georgia offensive coordinator, former Colorado State head coach, and Will Muschamp teammate at Georgia, has arrived to be the new offensive coordinator. Now, we mentioned before how there wasn't an expectation for Bobo in particular, uh, though we noted that at Colorado State he had some some wide-open offenses. And to look back at Georgia, especially when Bobo was offensive coordinator, you know, this we're talking Aaron Murray, Matthew Stafford, uh, quarterbacks that have done pretty good putting up big numbers. So uh, we need to answer who's going to be this this South Carolina quarterback. What is this South Carolina offense going to look like? And defensively, we're not just replacing Javon Kinlaw, first-round pick from the defensive line, but also DJ Wonham and Kobe Smith as well. And all of this is happening with a lot of pressure on Will Muschamp uh, with athletic director and university president, both not really handling hot seat questions very well at the end of last season. The staff changes have sort of given the appearance from the outside that Will Muschamp said, don't you worry, boss. I'm going to take care of this. I got my old buddy, my old college teammate. I'm going to call him up. We're going to fix it all. Everything's going to be great. Where is your confidence that South Carolina is going to put together a seven-win season in 2020? Seven wins? Not high. I chose seven because I think missing a bowl game, and, you know, granted, all this is being said uh, here on May 7th. We have no idea what the college football season is going to look like, but, you know, sort of for the purposes of the conversation, I believe that South Carolina fans and the South Carolina community is going into this season with their opinion on Will Muschamp hanging in the balance. And they're not going to look to see the improvements that have happened from a facility standpoint that he's helped lead and some of the infrastructure stuff that he's helped for South Carolina and South Carolina's program. But if they have another season of not being in a bowl game, uh, then they're they're going to be thinking about Will Muschamp differently. See, I, I think they can get to six. I have a feeling that it's I just think that the South Carolina team's gonna be better this year. It's just it is absolutely critical and imperative that they get off to a quick start. Because if you look at the back half of their schedule, I mean, just in November alone, they've got to play Georgia at LSU and at Clemson. So by the time October's coming to an end, they need to have five wins because they got Wofford in between LSU and Clemson and barring something ridiculous they'll win that game. But if they don't have five wins before they get to November, it's really hard to see them beating either Georgia, LSU, or Clemson. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it's just bad, bad luck in some ways that they're, they're cross-division games or A&M and LSU and their rivalry game that they have to play is, is mm-hmm. perennial national title favorite Clemson. Uh, I mean, that's, I think that's three losses right there that don't have to be on like that aren't 
Clemson always is going to be on the schedule, but you get my point. Like that's three losses baked in that you just have to deal with. And I guess A&M, they could beat A&M, and particularly because that's a home game. Uh, and I guess they could beat Georgia. They beat Georgia last year. So no, no, they can't. We shouldn't no. rule anything that was fluke, out. Fluke, fluke, fluke. <laughs> uh, but like it's 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 uh, to me this looks like a six and six kind of team. Um, I do think that they've they've, and part of that is just like what is what does South Carolina look like better than that? Like when when is when is like I'm just pull, let me. Is is last year that seared in my brain that like I can't really envision South Carolina being like awesome? They're four and eight, seven and six, nine and four, six and seven under Will Muschamp. So mm-hmm. yeah, they had one nine-win year, and then it's been kind of pretty average. And I feel like this is just gonna be another average year. They're gonna be a good team. They're gonna be a team everyone's got to get up for. They're gonna be a team that can beat you if you don't show up. And yet. Are they going to ever look like one of the better teams in the conference? I no. gotta, I'm, a, I'm not there. Um, I think the Mike Bobo edition is is pretty fascinating because you, you could make a case. And in fact, I would make this case that he is the best offensive coordinator Will Muschamp has ever had. And I don't even necessarily say that like with the – like I, I say that – also acknowledging that Mike Bobo isn't necessarily the best offensive coordinator that most coaches have ever had, but for Will Muschamp, who hadn't had a really a good offensive coordinator in his tenure, I think Mike Bobo is that. I think he's a good offensive coordinator. And so do, is that somehow the, the life raft that Will Muschamp has needed? Like, all right, maybe that just sneaks them over six and six, gets them to seven and five, maybe eight and four, and all of a sudden they're off and running with like a newfound offensive confidence. That's not like something I'm visualizing very easily, but I guess it's possible. Yeah, what I'm struggling with is I'm trying to figure out, am I feeling optimism for South Carolina based on anything objective about South Carolina itself or is it just a result of the fact that I kind of feel like Kentucky, Missouri might be trending downward in 2020 and maybe South Carolina is the team to take advantage of that. But that's so, what you're dealing with in the SEC East. Like that, that'd be the same thing that you're dealing with. Uh, I mean, in the big 10 West, you know, there's certain divisions where the margins between the teams is so slim that all you need is to, is to see like a couple of teams starting to trend downward and you could very quickly flip Three and five to five and three. Yeah, and I mean that's why I say it's. I think that six and six is in play, and a bowl game is in play. But like I said, they've they've got to get off to a good start. And two of those games early in the year, back to back weeks, are home versus Missouri and on the road against Kentucky. And I feel like if they come out of September having won those games at four and zero, oh, then all right, they're going bowling. If they're at three and one, I don't know. Slim. But what if they beat Clemson? Oh, well, then, you know, then the SEC is getting so two then, teams in. Georgia will have competition. What's And there's, some of this is, is you know, we probably should just save for our, our win totals pods. But, like, what is the best – what is the best case scenario that you can see South Carolina's win total be at the end of the season? Well, they're beating Coastal. coastal. 
East Carolina, Missouri, and Kentucky, and at Kentucky and at Florida. That's the start of the year. So they could go four and one, best case, probably. You think four and one's best case there? Because I don't think they're winning back to back road games against Kentucky and Florida. I mean, I I agree. So like, so probably four and one. Like they got Tennessee at home. Maybe they Let's can win that. that. So now we're five and one. Eight and four. Do they beat Tennessee and and like can they get A and M at home? Yes. Best case scenario, six yeah. Six and one. Like all I right, feel so like if say, we're doing right, best so case, six and one, you're winning your home good. games. Yeah. All right, so six and one. They'll beat Bam. They'll beat Vandy seven and one. Georgia. No. Best case scenario, no. Seven and two at LSU. I no. feel like no. Seven and three. Uh, eight and three versus Wofford. Eight, eight and, and four. four. Yeah. You got a best case scenario, eight and four. That's, that's that'd be good. And that's an eight and four with a couple of home wins. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That'll, yeah. that'll get you right back on the good side of things. Will Muschamp, we just gave you something that should uh, pique your interest. We laid it out. If, if Will Muschamp does go 8-4, should he be fired? Hit the yeah. phone lines. Let us know. <laughs> uh, and wrapping up the SEC East, the Vanderbilt Commodores, 3-9 and nine last season, 1-7 in conference play. And the expectations right now uh, are, are not for any direct upward trajectory. And – you know, things aren't looking good for Derek Mason. Uh, Derek Mason, he got that vote of confidence from athletic director Malcolm Turner, who then re- resigned. And uh, do we have a new athletic director announced for Vanderbilt, Barton? Uh, it's it's She's an interim athletic director. I don't think she's been named the permanent one, but maybe I missed it. <sighs> uh, Candace, uh, uh, Candace something. Never, uh, never. Candace leave. I think. Yeah, never great for your head coaching hot seat situation to have any kind of instability amidst the administration, especially with uh, the athletic director who is all behind you is uh, is now gone. Who else is gone? Uh, Keyshawn Vaughn, gone. Jared Pinckney, gone. Um, we don't really have one player that I can uh, point to and be like, Hey, like this, I guess Keon Brooks is the offensive player I'm the most excited about. Like there doesn't seem to be a, a Keyshawn Vaughn, Ralph Webb, Zach Stacy, sort of bell cow, uh, Vanderbilt running back that we could point to the offensive line is, has gotten just worked over in conference play. They do return the top 10 tacklers on defense and Derek Mason. Remember he, he gave up the, the defensive coordinator duties, uh, and new defensive coordinator is going to be Ted roof. So Ted Roof's in his D.C., Todd Fitch is in his offensive coordinator, and the Vanderbilt outlook, especially compared to the rest of the SEC, it's very, very hard to find a lot of enthusiasm behind just putting some energy behind your voice as you talk into the microphone. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think Ted Roof has been in the SEC since his three years at Auburn, right? I, I don't believe so. I don't. Yeah, but if his three seasons at Auburn are any indication, I don't know how excited I would be to have Ted Roof as my defensive coordinator if I'm a Vandy fan. Uh, I'm not optimistic. I, I mean, this is a team that went one and seven last year in the SEC, and I feel like we could be seeing a very similar season in 2020. I just I don't know what's different. I mean, I know they've they brought in a lot of new coaches. They're changing things, and most of the offense is gone, and most of the defense is back. But it's just I don't know what's changed that's going to make me suddenly think that this Vandy team, which you know, in conference play last year, did not look that competitive most of the time. There's nothing that I can look to and point to and say, okay, that's the reason they're improving. 
You know, it's a bad look is when after like whatever this time last year when Derek Mason, I guess it was SEC media days and Derek Mason was doing the, the media tour and he was saying, yeah, man, we're excited. Like our most important recruits, uh, this cycle were these three guys sitting right here next to me. And he was talking about the big three, which was Jared Pinckney, Kalajah Lipscomb, and Keyshawn Vaughn. And we got them back. And basically saying he recruited them to stay instead of going to the NFL draft. Not a good look when you're successful in recruiting those guys back home and you win three games with them and two of them go undrafted the following year. So, and so, so here, like, that's the backdrop of the bad year last year. Like, they had, that was... Like, I didn't think they were going to be good last year because I didn't think they were good in the trenches. And uh, they weren't good. It wasn't a good situation for those guys to come back to. But – and they also lost the Shermer kid who's who's a good quarterback for them um, from the 2018 team. And now with this this year's Vanderbilt team, think about this. Like, we're in a, a, a quarantine coronavirus era where – Change is a, is is a difficult thing to to sort of undergo right now because if you got continuity, maybe you can weather this. But if you got change, like how, where do you even find your identity? How do you find your leaders? How do you find your identity offensively, defensively? Vanderbilt's got a new offensive coordinator with a totally new system, by the way. Like different type of personnel that he likes, different type, different sort of philosophy, different way of winning. They've got a new defensive coordinator, uh, and then they've got a new quarterback, but the quarterback, whoever it's going to be, wasn't on the roster last year. They've got like four guys coming in, all of whom have to compete for the starting job. One of their best players, C.J. Bowler on offense, just entered the transfer portal a couple weeks ago. Like, I, I, like, show me where there's reason for optimism. Like, The best news I can think of for Vanderbilt is just that I think this was a good recruiting class in 2020. I like their recruiting class. So maybe they get a little pop out of their freshman class. I don't know, but doesn't look doesn't look pretty this year for uh, for Vandy. Yeah, and you know if if Derek Mason's entering the season on the hot seat, the schedule's not doing him a ton of favors either. Because well, if if you look at it, it's not like it's a murderer's row of opponents as much as it's you know they open the season with Mercer at home. But then they've got back-to-back road games against Mizzou and Kansas State, which will be a difficult road game. They come home for Colorado State, and then they get Georgia on the road before Ole Miss at home, and then Kentucky on the road. So of their first seven games, you know, four of them are on the road, which and they're not against the greatest, you know, the, the easy teams to beat on the road. And given Vanderbilt's history, it's not crazy to think that maybe they win that Mercer game and maybe they win that Colorado State game and they lose the other five. So suddenly, you know, they're they're ending October at two and five. You have to get to think if that's the case at that point, Mason's probably gone and interim comes in. And sure, then you've got a lot of home games to finish. But what's really left to your team at that point? When you started on the uh, uncertain times coronavirus bit, Barton, I thought you were going to stick that landing at, and who to better to bet on than the nerds with discipline? Vanderbilt's coming back stronger than anybody. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you know what would be crazy is I'm just <laughs> I'm like thinking through this. So, um, Derek Mason has just sort of like he's he's on he's he's, he's got nine lives. Because he really hasn't, 
shown a whole lot of reason to have confidence in him. But he's had a couple of years. You know, they got to a bowl game two years ago, and um, you know, this past year there was that. You know, they they basically decided to not to fire him, and they were going to work on facilities so that if they had to fire him the following year, they could make a hire that was going to be you know, that was going to be an appealing situation to come to. And, and now as we look at, like, there's an interim, uh, an interim, uh, athletic director, like she's not going to be super fired up to fire anybody. There's a pandemic, which is greatly affecting available funds. Like they're not going to be super stoked to pay Derek Mason out Vanderbilt of all places. So does Derek Mason go two and 10, and just keep on hanging in there and like letting it ride and surviving. And he's back for like year eight. Like he's been there for like seven years. It's mm-hmm. pretty, it's really one of the more impressive feats that he's been there for like seven years and, and really doesn't have a, a, a great year to show for it. So why is Derek Mason not on the coronavirus task force? <laughs> like I'm pretty sure he could figure he out could a survive. way. Yeah, he could survive. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. We will be back next week with our spring gleaning, taking a look at the SEC West. Be sure to keep it locked to the Cover 3 podcast as we're going to continue to be rolling out our Hurry Up Hot Seat Top 25 Countdown previews. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Fidel. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.